The other day, as I was picking Andrew and Sarah up, as I was picking Andrew and Sarah up, I realized things seem to be a little different in their experience of grade school than mine. So maybe I'll take some of you guys down memory road a little bit here. Maybe not. Hopefully you can find the place in this. But there, when I was in Andrew's grade, he's in fifth grade, by the way, we didn't have a playground at our school. What we had was a really big parking lot. Every day, whether it was like this or whether it was 90 degrees outside, you knew there was going to be a football game going on. And we'd have the, you know, the long lines of parking rows, and that would be our out-of-bounds and everything like that. And of course, we played those a little bit of a hill, so it made it all the more interesting for a bunch of kids in dress shoes to be playing football. But the most critical event would come at the very start. And it had nothing to do with understanding the game or the rules or anything like that. It had to do with picking teams. Choosing who was going to be on your side and who was going to be on the other side. And the alphas in the classroom, had, they would be scouting all day long, all week long, even though this game was happening constantly. Who's the fastest? Who's the strongest? Or sometimes, let's face it, who is just plain old the most popular? Because you couldn't have the unpopular kid on your team because, I mean, we're talking about your legacy of fifth grade here. So, you know, we've got to get this right. I wasn't the alpha in our class by any means. I was, there were the alphas, I was the omega. I was on the complete other end of the spectrum. I, I, so I didn't have that captain of the team pressure on me. I had a, a different kind that was more like, all right, what's it going to be this day? Am I going to get picked or am I going to get defaulted because I'm the only one left? Maybe some of you can relate a little bit. To what that's like. I know. First world problems for the world of a fifth grader. But when you're in fifth grade, it's a big deal. There's a certain emotion. or certain emotions that go to the idea of being chosen. Of being accepted. Or not being accepted. Being passed by. We all, just as human beings, have that desire that want to be accepted, to be loved, to be received for who we are right now. As I kind of introduce things with Dave, that's, I forget exactly how he words it, but that's one of Maslow's ways of labeling our needs. That there comes a point where, you know what, we've got oxygen, hopefully we got that covered. We've got the food, water, shelter, we've got that covered. And there comes to be a point where we want to be part of a community. Be accepted. Be loved. And these next couple of weeks, as we, as I said, start to set up Advent, we start to see some of God's promises that he makes that ultimately comes to the promise we celebrate, or that we anticipate in Advent and ultimately celebrate at Christmas. We're going to look at the Old Testament co- covenants that God made with his people. The Old Testament promises that he made. We don't hear that term very often, covenant. It's not really a part of our, our culture today in the 21st century, at least not here in the United States. We, we have contract, which we understand. 
You know, two people, two parties, excuse me, who agree to certain terms of a relationship. And so long as both sides keep their part, things work out. And if one side bails, well, hey, now I'm, I can be out of the contract. And we you know, start all over. But this idea of covenant, something that goes beyond just, well, hey, if you don't keep up your end of the bargain, then you know, the whole thing falls apart. It goes a little bit deeper than that. It's a central theme to, to the Bible as a way of understanding God's relationship to human beings. And before we get into the individual covenants, well, there's a couple of them throughout the Old Testament that we'll look at in these couple of weeks. I want to dive into the, the, sub, the topic itself, that idea of covenant. That, so it helps us to understand this whole idea that God says of They will be my people, and I will be their God. So one of the ways that this relationship starts to show itself. And it can feel like, as I said earlier, choppy waters getting into this, because there starts to get to some sort of uncomfortable um, parts to this, or or ways that we just we feel kind of squirmy about it. So I'm going to tip my hat to... um, to Tim Keller, he did a, a writing on this that I'm drawing a lot from because uh, his ideas are great. And you know what? He says it sometimes better. He says it a lot better than I can. So I'm going to give you guys the best that there is out there. So if i got to tip my hat to Tim Keller, by all means, I'm going to do that. But hear the words that God writes, that God offers to his people. This comes out of Deuteronomy 7. Verses 6 through 11. It goes like this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. Out of all the people on earth to be his people. His treasured possession. It was not because you were more numerous than any other people. That the Lord set his heart on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who maintains covenant loyalty with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and who repays in their own person those who reject him. He does not delay, but repays in their own person those who reject him. We'll go over that one. Therefore, observe diligently the command, the commandment, the statutes, and the ordinances that I am commanding you today. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So hear that verb, that principal verb that, that gets repeated, that a lot of this passage builds off of. Chosen. Repeated a few times. And this is where things can start to get a bit sticky. Here, uh, how he says it in, ver- in verse 6. The Lord, your, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth to be his people. His treasured possession. Now, through the Bible, really from start to finish... We see this thread of continuity in this. That God is the one who acts first. God is the one who makes the first move. 
We see it in a couple different places. I, in First John, we love because He, God, first loved us. We hear that. It's okay. That makes sense. I, I get it. Most people kind of find their way to, to be okay with that idea. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, passage we often hear repeated in a gospel presentation, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Makes sense. Most people, you know, if you've been around the Christian block for a a few times, I know many of us have, we find a way to kind of be okay with how this works. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on earth to be his people. And it's like, whoa! Hold your horses here, God. You chose me? Hang on. I don't know if I like you imposing your choice on me. It's, it's almost like there's this kind of loss of control. Sort of like the stress we talked about a few weeks ago when changes get sort of forced on us. It's kind of like, okay, hang on a second here. Especially if we like the idea of free will, of choice, of autonomy, which kind of guides a lot of what we sort of value in the West. So let's just be totally honest. Beyond just the individualism, you know, the the choose me or not choose me kind of thing, this concept creates some pretty huge problems. Let's just, let's call a spade a spade here. Just to, to start it off, I mean, if a person is chosen, I guess I shouldn't air quote that because we're going to just use that phrase a lot today. What stops them from acting like an elitist jerk to the rest of the world? Well, if God chooses some people to be hit on earth to be his people, his treasured possession, what stops God, what makes God not just choose everybody? Good questions. Pretty huge problems when you start to think about it. I, and being one who, you know, a lot of my family, a lot of my friends are, have kind of a nominal connection to faith at all, I've asked many of these questions myself and struggled with many of them myself. So if God writes the idea of covenant based off of this idea of God choosing God being the, the first actor, let me offer a picture that can offer some hope in this concept. I'm going to go after that first question that I asked. That's a pretty honest question. Maybe you've even been asked if you, if you thought about this. What stops a person who's chosen from just being a jerk? And we look at you look at Christian history, and really, I mean, the history of the world, and history is riddled with people and stories who said, you know what, God is on my side, so therefore I have the right to bash everybody who disagrees with me, who thinks differently than me, who is different than me, who looks different than me, because God is on my side, as opposed to the flip me being on God's side, which is probably a little bit of a better plan. So God chooses to answer 
those who might say, hey, if God is on my side, then I have the right to be an elitist jerk over everybody else. And God answers them in verse 7. He says, it was not because you were more numerous than any of the other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of the people. It's like God saying, I didn't choose you because you were awesome. In fact, you were anything but awesome. I didn't choose you because you were the alpha. I, you're, the, you're the omega. Don't, don't think I chose you because you brought something great to the table. That you have something you get to hold over other people. I mean, check out the order of the phrases and how this plays out in verse uh, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now it's not that Israel was worthy of being a treasured possession and therefore God chose them. Rather, it's the flip. God chose them to become a treasured possession. That qualification comes after the choosing, not before it. And if we work the situation backwards, we're going to start getting into some language that maybe you're a little bit more familiar with, if you haven't dived too heavily into this topic. And maybe this will start to help show some peace or some hope in this situation. If we work the situation backwards, we can see that choosing, God choosing, is ultimately an act of grace. Because left to our own devices, if we're honest with ourselves, 100,000 times out of 100,000 times, we're going to choose our own way over choosing God. Even if you've been around the Christian block a million times. If we're just left to totally to our own devices, we're not going to choose God on our own. Welcome to the, just the nature of a, of a fallen humanity. Of a, of a humanity that sin is kind of the default. Okay, So if the only difference between a believer and a non-believer, or to kind of use the nomenclature that we've been using here, if the only difference between somebody who is, there's evidence that they are chosen, i.e. they're a Christian, the things of God matter to them, and somebody who's not yet shown the evidence of being chosen, as of this instant they're not a believer, because it may still happen, you know, if the only difference between those two is grace, and all of a sudden, all bragging goes out the win- All bragging rights go right out the window. As Paul says in other places, where you know, you've got nothing to brag on, because all of this blessing comes from grace. And God gets to the, and God gets to the point where it's simply God loves you, simply because He loves you, for no other reason. It's like if I were. Um, if we were to have a married couple, and we have at least a couple of them here, <laughs> myself being one of them, and if your spouse asked, 
Why do you love me? Here's a lot of ways to not go. And this is a story Keller brings up, so I'm going to go together. It says, don't say, I love you because you're beautiful. Now, maybe you think that, okay. Well, aging happens, and, you know, I don't, I, guy or girl, doesn't look the same at 75 as we do at 25. That's just how life goes. So, okay, can you still love me? Because Well, I love you because you have an awesome wit. Well, what if I go through a time of depression and my wit just kind of goes out the window? And all these different things. Can we get to the point where it's just, you know what? I love you because I love you. Unconditionally. Not because you have this or you are this or you do this. Now, we never get to the, the point of having that in practice perfectly, this side of heaven, but God does. And when we understand that unconditional love, I love you because I love you because I love you, it yields humility, not haughtiness. But, now let's flip it. If our relationship with God finds its roots finds its foundation in anything except grace? You thought there were problems with God chose. Well, there becomes much huger problems with I chose God. Because the only alternative is that it finds its root, that our relationship with God would find its root in I'm a little wiser, I'm a little more righteous, I'm a little better, than the person who has not yet been chosen, does not yet have that relationship. You see the Pandora's box that just starts to crack open when we, when we go there? In fact, to draw straight out of his words, Tim Keller says this, there's nothing this world needs more than a faith that erodes and undercuts the ability of believers to feel superior to other people. And the doctrine of election completely doesn't. The doctrine of election being the formalized word for God chose or predestination completely undercuts the right for anybody to feel they have bragging rights or I get to be an elitist jerk over somebody else. So, I said I was going to address the the elephant in the room that kind of comes up as the passage goes on. Another honest question. If grace is all about God shows us. And if that's all about unconditional love that God has for his people, I love you because I love you because I love you. What in the world do we do with verses 9 and 10? The ones that read, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who maintains covenant loyalty to those who love him, and keep his commandments. Now we're starting to get a little squirrely to a thousand generations, and who repays in their own person those who reject him. He does not delay, but repays in their own person those who reject him. Or if I can use uh, the New Living Translation to put a little bit more punch to verse number 10, a bit of a, a gut shot, but he does not hesitate to punish and destroy those who reject him. Now, that kind of puts God in a bit of a quandary. How 
can perfect love and unconditional love, and I love you because I love you because I love you, line up with obey or I will destroy you? Pretty good question. Here's the thing. The solution is something we wouldn't have come up with, even if we tried. Put the best storyteller, put the best author, put the best movie director to come up with an idea how to make those two work out. They're not going to get it right, but God does. Because we can't get there. We can't get to an answer until we get to the cross. What happened at the cross? I know I said we were going to get into, we were setting up Advent. We're going to touch on Good Friday a little bit here. What happened at the cross? For just a sliver, at least, Jesus was forsaken by his Father. He says it in Matthew 27, when he is up there, having suffered for a couple hours already. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sambachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? The one person who had the closest, most intimate relationship with God the Father, and he says, in his, the time he needs him most, why have you abandoned me? Jesus is being abandoned, nailed, speared, gouged, ultimately, To use the New Living Translation's word, he's being destroyed. He's the only one who met the qualifications for covenant relationship. Did all the obey, obey, uh, did all the keep the commandments to a thousand generations, all the obey stuff, he got perfect. And yet he takes the punishment for covenant disobedience. So that God could love us without condition. Without us having to measure up. Because he already did it for us. And all the times we don't measure up, he took care of it for us. And beat it for us. And it's in that event that we find security. As Jesus says, um, while he's still physically alive in John 10, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one, this is the Son of God saying this, no one can snatch them away from me. So here's where the security can come in. Here's where the peace can come in. That when this happens... When we accept Christ and that becomes sort of the fruit of being chosen because God was the one who was acting first, setting things up, moving in our hearts that we would even care enough to wonder about this God and Jesus business. We gain a new identity as a Christian first and all else second. A Christian first and male second. A Christian first and female second. A Christian first and African American, white, Asian, Middle Eastern second. And all the cultural pressure 
that we get about those other identities, about the world saying, you have to do these ten things in order to be a real man. Well, they start to fall away. Because, let's say we're not, one of the things that culture will say is you better be an alpha if you're going to be a real man. I won't speak to anything but what I know here, so you can fill in the gaps of, of the examples for your own demographic. You better be an alpha if you're going to be a real man. That's what culture will tell you. Well, what if I'm not an alpha? That's okay. Because I'm a Christian first. I'm a guy second. I'm a male. I'm, a, I'm white. I'm American. Don't measure up. Some place you fall short according to what the culture says you're supposed to be. And culture can be family, community, church. It's not just the West. It's okay. Because my identity is first in Christ. Second in all that other stuff. So as we continue building up this love story that God has written for us, may you find your peace and your rest in Him. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for choosing us. Thank you that even though we were the least of the people, the fewest of the people, the omegas of the world, you chose us out of your grace. So help us to hang on to that, to find our identity in that, to find our purpose in that, that we might really get to experience what abundant life is meant to be. All this we pray in your name. Amen.